But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble, and brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my whole life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law, and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I wasn't aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, and he ordered the troops to go down and to take him away from there by force, and to bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. The Word of the Lord. I have loved sports ever since I can remember. I, I have these fond memories of being a little kid watching Husky football and Seahawk games and Mariner games with my dad. I remember um, having a championship t-shirt from the Seattle Supersonics when I was just a little guy. And uh, it still makes me cringe to think that my mom turned that shirt at some point into a rag to clean the house with. I love to play football and baseball with my friends in the empty lots next to the house that I grew up in. And I remember epic badminton battles, competitions in the backyard with my family. There's something pure about sport, at least when sport is at its best. And this purity sort of reveals the truth. It puts people to the test. Like there's a lot of great athletes out there who can sink free throws and three pointers in the gym, but doing it under pressure, that's what reveals one's greatness or one's weakness. There are plenty of quarterbacks in the world who can throw the football on target in practice, but it's the special ones who can do it when the game is on the line and things aren't going your way. It takes a certain level of courage to overcome fear and nerves and anxiety. And one of the things I love most about sports is that anything can happen. The best team on paper doesn't necessarily always win. The fastest runner or the strongest fighter doesn't always find victory. Anything can happen in sports because people are involved and people make mistakes and people can find the courage to perform under incredible odds. Now, most of you know that one of the sports I really enjoy following is soccer. You can see the scarfs on the back wall. The Premier League in England is arguably the most competitive league in the world. There is so much competition between the 20 teams that make up their Premier League that it's not out of the question uh, for one of those ordinary low-level teams at the bottom to occasionally beat one of the big teams like Manchester United or Liverpool or Chelsea. 
But in the 2015 and 16 season, something absolutely unbelievable happened to surprise the sporting world. Leicester City won the Premier League. Now, you maybe never heard of Leicester City. Seven years before the 2015-16 season, Leicester City were a soccer team in the third tier of English football. That's like a single-A baseball team. And in just seven years, on a minuscule budget, they advanced through the ranks and found themselves in the top flight of English football, the Premier League. Now, the odds of them winning the title when that season started were 5,000 to 1. It's hard to put it into perspective if you're not a soccer fan, but 5,000 to 1 are worse odds than the Mariners winning the World Series. Yes, the Mariners. It's worse odds, tongue-in-cheek, than the U.S. winning the World Cup in 2018, which they didn't qualify for. Leicester City couldn't match the big clubs in money or in big-name players or famous managers, but what they had was clarity of identity and they had courage to stay true to who they were and to who they weren't against the mighty powers of these legendary teams. Sometimes the best team on paper doesn't win. Sometimes the team with the best players and the best manager and the most money can't win because people are involved, because sin is involved, error is involved. And sometimes the nobodies win because they stay true and honest and find courage in the face of overwhelming odds. In our story today, in Acts 23, the Apostle Paul is sort of a Leicester city. At least from the world's perspective, he is. He's caught up in a controversy involving Rome, the most powerful empire on paper, and the Jewish leadership in Israel, the most uh, like ethical um, religion in the world on paper. And yet it is Paul who is shown to be in the right, because no matter what is on paper, people are involved. It all started when Paul had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of Pentecost and to report to the Christian elders uh, all about his missionary work in Greece and Asia. There was lots to celebrate. Jews and Gentiles had been coming to put their faith in Jesus through Paul's ministry and churches were being planted all over the known world, and the gospel of Jesus was thriving. But there were some zealous Jews there in Jerusalem who falsely believed that Paul was teaching against the Jewish scriptures and against the laws and desecrating sacred spaces. So a mob formed around Paul at the Jewish temple, and he was nearly killed. In fact, the Roman government had to step in and take him into custody, not so much to protect him, but to prevent the mob violence that could turn into an insurrection. Rome was touted as the most civilized empire in the world. They bragged about their justice system and claimed that they were a blessing to the world, bringing the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Of course, the peace of Rome was only won in the wake of their conquering and occupying armies. But Rome was going to resort to torture to try and get Paul to confess to some sort of wrongdoing. And to their surprises, they have him strung up on this rack that they're going to whip him on. Paul says, "Um, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? And because he was a citizen, born in the free country of Tarsus, that meant that torture was off the table for the Romans. They were put in their place. And so the supposedly just nation, most just nation in the world, handed him over to his own people, the Jewish religious leaders. 
And the Romans did that because they thought, well, maybe these guys can make sense of what Paul is stirring up trouble about, right? They would be able to know if Paul was innocent. So Paul uh, begins by asserting his clear conscience, which was a common rhetorical defense of character in the ancient world. And what this means is that Paul claimed to have a clear conscience before God, even while claiming that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was the Messiah, the Son of God. Paul knew who he was. He knew his message because he knew what Jesus had done in his life. And now, uh, many decades into his ministry, he was a witness to how Jesus had transformed so many lives of so many people. Now, on paper, for a first century reader to this story, the Jewish religious leaders represented the height of ethical standards. They had the prophets, which were the golden age of ethical teachings about equity and justice and holiness. They had centuries of refined reflections on justice about how to treat other people made in the image of God. And yet, people were involved. And in particular, Ananias, the high priest, was involved. The historian Josephus tells us that the high priest Ananias was horribly corrupt. He was a bully. He used to steal the tithes that people brought to the temple for the priesthood, and he would take them from the poor priest to line his own pockets. He was a sympathizer with the Roman government and was hated by the common Jewish people. In fact, he was actually killed by Jewish revolutionaries in a revolt in AD 66. But in our story, which takes place around 58 AD, he's very much alive. And he orders someone to strike Paul in the face before he can even finish his defense. Now, Paul has been failed by Rome, the picture of leadership and justice in the ancient world. And Paul has been failed by the Jewish leadership, representing the ethical standard in the ancient world. And Paul realizes that he's not going to get justice from either of these groups. He's not going to be treated fairly or ethically by Rome or the Jewish leaders. But he also knows the Lord. And he knows what Rome and Ananias do not know, the risen and reigning Jesus who had called Paul to proclaim the gospel of the inbreaking kingdom of God. And so Paul is struck in the face at the order of the high priest. And the high priest is supposed to uphold the law of God, but he breaks it by inciting violence toward a man who's not been proven guilty. Uh, you can see Leviticus 19.15 for an example of, of that law. Now, Paul, an expert in the scriptures, speaks truth to the powers that be. And he says to the man who ordered him struck, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now on the surface, it seems like Paul has totally lost his temper and just pulled out some ancient insult like a first century your mama joke or something like that. Paul is has every reason to be angry in this situation. And there's no reason to believe that he's not angry. He's been falsely accused. He's been let down by Rome and Israel. He can't seem to get a fair hearing. And for many in the world, this is the reality of corrupt justice. For many in our own country, those who are under-resourced, those who are born with a certain skin color or who immigrated from the wrong country or who have the wrong accent or the wrong gender, a fair hearing is not assumed even in the so-called land of the free. But Paul is not just spouting off insults in a fit of rage. The phrase actually comes from the prophet Ezekiel in the 13th chapter. 
The setting there is God's condemnation of Israel's corrupt leadership. In the prophet, it says that they stand like whitewashed walls of strength and purity and and cleanliness, but underneath their thin veneer is rot and death, and they will crumble and fall as God judges them for abusing his people. Paul is speaking truth to power, but he's handing over the outcomes to God. Paul is confronting injustice, but he's not seeking vengeance. He knows that vengeance is God's alone. Now, I see two important lessons here. And the first is for all of you who feel on the margins. Those who experience injustice and long for shalom, which to some degree is all of us, especially in the current state of things, but some a lot more than others. And for you, we can take courage to speak to power because we know that God is on the side of the oppressed, that God is on the side of justice, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked, and that is very good news for those who have faith in him. But there's another lesson here, a lesson that ought to give many of us a pause of conviction. Paul is clearly unjustly treated. But his is the only voice we hear in the whole story who speaks truth to power and claims the justice of God. How can that be? He is literally, in this story, surrounded by the high priest and the Jewish council of leadership, men who were committed to the scriptures and to the holiness of God and to the ethical standards of the law. Was there no one who would speak up against this injustice? Historical records clearly tell us that the high priest Ananias was despised even by his own peers. Was there no one with the courage to intervene for Paul? It seems that their courage failed them. And we've seen this type of thing on display all too presently in our own nation. In the past weeks and months, that there's been fear of speaking out against one's own party or one's own leader, and it's come at the cost of integrity and trust and, sadly, at the cost of lives. This Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I'm reminded that what hurt Dr. King's heart most wasn't the vehement racism of hate groups or even the racism that was so baked into the foundation or is so baked into the foundation of our culture. What hurt him the most was the white church who agreed with him against racism, but called for moderation and was slow to act and slow to speak. It was the pastors and leaders who were against racism, but who failed to speak truth to power or to stand with him in his peaceful, prophetic work against the powers of evil. Will we have the courage to do what is right? To say what is wrong when the powers that be are in the wrong? Will we have the humility to bless and honor the powers that be when they're acting on the side of justice? It was Paul's faith in Jesus and Jesus' kingdom that gave him the courage. Where is our faith and our hope these days? For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over this weird part about Paul not knowing he was speaking to the high priest, and you can ask me about it after the service or in my Wednesday night Bible study. But anyway, as the story continues, Paul realizes that he's not going to get anywhere with the Jewish council. I mean, he is in real trouble here. Sometime for extra credit, you should check out the similarities between Paul's trial and Jesus's trial. 
the eerie similarities wouldn't be lost on Paul, and he's going to try and avoid execution if he can help it. So he perceives that the Jewish council is made up of at least two groups of Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm not going to go into detail about the main differences with these groups, but suffice it to say that they had lots in common, but there were some significant differences in theological beliefs. Mainly, the Sadducees didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, and they were very skeptical of supernatural visions or visitations. And the Pharisees were open to all of these things, and Paul had once been a Pharisee. In fact, a well-known and respected Pharisee. So he blurts out, I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Now, was this just crafty, like a sort of wise as serpents, innocent as doves moment? Was this just a move by Paul to divide and conquer? I mean, maybe. Uh, One minute they're going to tear him apart, and now it looks like they want to tear each other apart. And I definitely think that Paul is using his privilege as a Roman citizen to get out of a sticky spot in Acts 22. And now I think he's using his sharp mind to get out of a mess here in this chapter 23. I mean, use what you've got to employ it for the, for the good of others and the kingdom of God, right? But I think that there's more to this story than just self-preservation. Paul knows he's on borrowed time. And I genuinely think he wants to cut to the chase and blurt out the main point of his message before he loses his chance. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That line is the gospel, especially for Jews who were his immediate audience in that moment. Jews already had a way of being forgiven for their sin through temple sacrifice. But the hope of the resurrection of the dead, that was shorthand for the final consummation, for the end of the age that was promised in the prophets, also known as the day of the Lord, the salvation of God. And his message was that in the resurrection of Jesus, the end of the age, the was very unexpectedly previewed and inaugurated through Jesus. That Jesus is the embodiment of the hope of the world, the new creation. And in his moment of fear and danger, Paul finds courage, not in himself, but in the hope of the resurrection. After all, if the worst that the world can do is to kill you, and you know in your heart that you can't die eternally, that in Christ there's resurrection and new creation, then all of a sudden this kind of courage makes total sense. When we're down and discouraged and anxious about the state of things, can we find courage in the hope of the resurrection and new creation? Jesus will make all things new, including us. So we have reason for courage because God is the avenger of the oppressor and defender of the just. And we have courage because of the hope of the resurrection. If we have faith in Christ, our future is life and life to the full. But finally, we can have courage because Jesus is with us. That night after Paul is locked back up with the Romans, that night after having received no justice or fairness and not knowing if he would even be alive by morning, Jesus came to Paul and stood, where does the text say? Stood at his side. And Jesus says to him, Take courage, for you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must now witness also in Rome. Paul can take courage because Jesus is with him. 
because Jesus reaffirms his call on Paul's life to preach the gospel, at least in one more spot. You and I may not be apostles or called to a specific mission to Rome or something like that, but we are each of us created in God's image and called by Jesus to be human, to be boys and girls and women and men who reflect the goodness of God. In the face of policies of death, we are to speak up for life in all its expressions. In the ugliness of lies and deceit, we point to beauty and truth. And when we encounter injustice, we speak truth to power and come alongside those who are in need. Jesus is with us. He calls us to be people of love and justice and mercy and truth and grace. So take courage. Jesus is for you. When you and I are open to his kingdom initiatives in the world, he is so with us.